0: Welcome to the Under One Sky podcast, a podcast exploring the bigger story of homelessness, as we seek to bring together humanity in the recognition that we are all alike, just for some people, the right things in their lives have gone wrong. I'm Ollie, and this week on the podcast, we'll be talking to Julia Pennington, the founder of Dignify, to understand trauma. This podcast is a conversation. Each episode is a contribution to that conversation, and trauma is the start of that conversation. Under One Sky uses the Dignify model of safety, connection, and purpose, which is purely informed by the impacts of trauma to understand and connect and befriend and listen to our homeless friends. We really hope that this episode opens up a new understanding and provides a new lens as we start this conversation about homelessness, because the beginning of the conversation needs to start with trauma. I hope you enjoy. Let's get at it. Welcome, Julia. Thanks so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Julia is a friend of Under One Sky who um, has 20 years of working with people of different ages, backgrounds, and she's got uh, work experience working with the criminal justice system, with local authorities. And more importantly, she's the founder of Dignify, an organisation that helps people and organisations recover from the impacts of trauma and so you've been working with police and it's like really awesome stuff you've been doing
1: we feel like it feels like we're growing this year we've grown a lot this year
0: it's, it's work that i don't think many people are aware of so it's, it's great to give you a kind of platform to talk a bit Thank about you. that this morning um
1: mm-hmm.
0: so i suppose this first question um is you're basically an expert working in the trauma within trauma um so it's probably a good starting point to ask what a definition of trauma is? What what is trauma?
1: Yeah, well, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with the um, terminology expert. I'm certainly not an (laughs) expert in um, anything, Um, but I do know a lot about trauma and the impacts that it has on people. Um, What is it? For me, trauma is an emotional wound. Um, I think, you know, when somebody has a broken arm or a black eye or a physical injury, we're much more likely to be mm. compassionate and understanding and we'll sort of like, oh, my God, what happened to you? Yeah. But with trauma, we can't see the wound. It's an emotional wound. And mm. because of that, what we see sometimes is behaviours instead of um, wounds or, or something that we can physically see. The thing that we can physically see is behaviour. And because of that, I think we're less likely to be compassionate when we meet people who are living with it past experiences of trauma.
0: I mean, if you're gonna sum it up, what does trauma do? Like, what what does it create in someone?
1: Well, if we think of what trauma is, usually it's somebody doing something to you or mm-hmm. something happening to you that is unwanted, you know, yeah. so it could be that you know, I was, I think even if people are listening to this and "Oh, I've never had any trauma in my life, I had a good childhood. Let's think about the last two years The pandemic made us all feel unsafe and I think that sums up what trauma is, you know, we need to feel safe and here is this invisible thing that's making us all feel unsafe and that for me is what trauma is, it's something that makes us feel unsafe and if that is linked to our connections, so if those feelings of unsafety have been done to us by another person, that's going to be closely linked to the way we develop relationships and the way mm-hmm. we connect with other people so that for me it's a feeling of unsafety and usually that's caused by our connection or a damage to our connections
0: and so then will i be right in thinking that if trauma damages safety and it damages our capacity for connection that'd be right then that develops these ideas of new normals
1: well your brain's still growing until you're 25. Well, you know, okay. your brain grows rapidly till you're 25 and you know it's making all these different connections and you know the first part of your brain to grow is the lower part of your brain your brain stem and that's about mm-hmm. our need for safety we all need to feel safe in order to thrive and take risks and do all the things that humans do
0: mm-hmm. we all need
1: connection especially when we're children because we're reliant on adults to look after us so we need those healthy connections to be modeled to us
0: mm-hmm. and
1: wrapped around that is the prefrontal cortex so the you know wonderful uh, creative part of our brains that have evolved wonderfully for humans we think we imagine we create we do all these wonderful things with our brain mm-hmm. but if we don't feel safe or connected the thinking part of our brain almost switches off and what happens is we adapt So if we don't feel safe, we will adapt our behavior and adapt our sense of safety and we'll do things in order to feel safe. So, for example, if you have had um, lots of violence in your childhood, uh, you've grown up in a house where there was domestic abuse. Let's use that as an example. Um, You know, you've been exposed to a lot of violence. Your brain is going to struggle to cope with that. And so you do. One of a few things, it's either going to disassociate. So you're there, but you're not there because mm-hmm. you know, my body has got to cope with this pain that I'm in. Um, you're going to fight your way out of those situations. You're going to try and run away from those situations, or um, you're going to fall and you're going to try and people please. And, you know, make sure that this doesn't happen again. And those adaptations can, mean will make the wrong choices. You know, I think sometimes when we look at, if we're talking about the homeless community, if mm-hmm. we look at people on the streets and say, well, why would somebody make that choice? Why would somebody you know choose to be on the streets? Why would somebody choose to take drugs? It's not a choice. It's an adaptation. It's a coping strategy. It's, you know, emotional pain and emotional rejection hurts. But just because we can't see the wound, as I said earlier, in the same way that we can see a black eye or a broken leg, doesn't mean that we can't, it doesn't hurt. It just means we can't see the pain.
0: And And the problem is we quickly jump to just...
1: Conclusions about, well, why would somebody do that? There's a choice to take drugs, actually. Most people who are using drugs will tell you it's a painkiller. I, was having,
0: I had a conversation with someone and um, I was talking to about the work I'm doing and my friends I met on the street, because um, I've, I've genuinely created a friendship with these guys. Um, yeah. And I was explaining to him and his, I mean, I don't blame him because there's awkwardness around this situation and this kind of topic because I mean we're not used to it and it's kind of hard to engage sometimes. But his question was like, so, so are they on the street because of drugs or alcohol? And for me, it was just like I got kicked for six Um, because it's like that's just not true that's not at all what happened i know the story and hopefully i get a chance to hear them maybe on this podcast later on and their story Mm -hmm. but a lot of people don't recognize that because there's so much complexity to it and trauma is a starting point if we're talking about this being a story a long story trauma is basically the starting point that continues um which a lot of people don't think recognize
1: yeah And one of my colleagues, she's just been involved in um, some research for um, it's around palliative care and end of life care for Mm. people who have used substances all their lives. And what she's learned through that research is for a lot of those people, they've had histories of extensive trauma when they were children, when that brain was growing and developing. That's meant the brain has adapted and not been able to cope with those experiences in the same way that it might have if if they'd happened when they were an adult yeah and then because of that in teenage years they've then used substances to cope so they might have started Mm -hmm. smoking and that's escalated then they might have started drinking you know alcohol sold in every shop but -hmm. it's also a wonderful painkiller if you've got um you know a history of trauma it helps to dampen down those feelings and those um painful emotions And then it becomes an addiction you know people don't know how to cope without it and, and then the, people will yeah.
0: see those people on the street and they're like oh that must be the reason and yeah. it's like it's just no it's not the reason the it's just What to expect yeah
1: yeah the, the alcohol is a symptom of, yeah. of their experiences it's not the whole picture yeah and the example i always give ollie is you know We're all really compassionate, aren't we, when we see children on the news that have been abused Mm. or when there's been a horrific um, child abuse case or even a child that's passed away. There's a lot of it in the news at the moment. And we're all like, oh, my God, that's really terrible, that poor child. Mm. But you know, my reflection on that is, well, that child may have grown up had that not happened to that child. And, you know, I work (laughs) with people every day that have had those horrendous childhood experiences and they do grow up and they do pick up Addictions and all other types of, Mm. you know, terrible coping strategies that are are, are soul destroying and and self destructive for them Mm. and for society. And we need to understand why, rather than move into these judgments.
0: Yeah, you talk about that and like referring to that case in the news about Arthur, Mm. and that was awful. That was really atrocious. You wouldn't be able to find someone who wasn't sympathetic and empathetic to that situation. It's terrible. But you translate that and that's the starting point for a lot of people we're not we're sympathetic to that but we're not to the end cause and that's mad
1: i have 20 authors that we're working with daily as part of our working group at manchester we work with people on probation who have been in the care system and when we explore their histories of childhood trauma it is horrendous some of my staff have to have counseling to cope with what we hear
0: so Dignify happened, so you kind of...
1: I left the probation service in May 2019 and just took a leap of faith, I thought I've got to try and do something different and see if it works and um, probation actually said come and try it with a group of our care leavers and that was how our work started. We started working with a group of young men on probation who had all been involved in serious crime but had also all been through the uh, care system as children. And none of those people went back to jail when we evaluated the work. A year after we'd finished working with them, none of them had gone back to jail. And in fact, one of them is now one of our trainers. One of them had gone off to do drag. You know, their outcomes were very different. But I think to me, what they'd found was themselves. And I think trauma disconnected them from who they were and what they were. And the work that we did helped them to reconnect to themselves. And it was just amazing to watch those young people blossom
0: and so thinking a bit more about under one sky yeah how did you get involved with under one sky
1: I think under one sky is one of the my favorite organizations that we've worked mm. with and I think part of that is Mikel he's a wonderful man um and I think I've watched Under One Sky just evolve over the Mm -hmm. last seven years. So, Mikkel's been a friend of mine for about seven years, and I think my first Skywalk was about seven years ago. And I've always been taken back by the Under One Sky model and never really been able to articulate why until probably two or three years ago. And now I know why. It's because you make people feel safe and you connect with them, and through that they find their sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. So, it's really aligned with what we do as an organisation. Um, And when I first did my skywalk, you know, I I remember sitting on the floor with homeless people in the city of London and just being overwhelmed by their trauma stories, you know, and, and the things that they'd experienced. One of the stories that really sticks out to me was I remember kneeling down to a woman and saying to her, why are you out here? It's freezing. And she told me story. Well, they want to put me in a hostel but I've been raped in hostels and that's really unsafe for me. And, you know, my boyfriend's out here and he keeps me safe. And so safety and connection was why she was on the streets. And that always has stayed with me. And then um, I think during the pandemic, um, as you know, everywhere locked down, but there was nowhere for homeless to go. Yeah. They were left out there and Mikel put a big campaign together to kind of support that and make sure that people didn't go hungry or, um, you know, that people were safe. And and I was a a partner and I supported Mikel through the lockdown and Mikel's team through the lockdown. And that support has just continued. I've delivered a couple of presentations in London this year. I've trained some of his volunteers. And, yeah, just a really big supporter of everything that Under One Sky do. Mm.
0: With that story you told, you know, a lot of people, I think their natural inclination is to think, um, you know, people on the street, if they have an opportunity to leave, um the street and go to some housing like you'd be mad not to take it right that's that's i think that's most people's thinking yeah but that story completely undermines that like this woman had an opportunity to go into the hostel
1: yeah
0: and to be warm and safe theoretically like we'd we'd term that as warm and safe maybe
1: yeah
0: but for her that's just not the case
1: well and and also if you've grown up in an environment where you're completely unsafe and your normal is being dysregulated every day, feeling unsafe every day, on the lookout for danger every day. A warm, safe home isn't normal. That's not your normal. That feels boring. That feels unsafe because actually the last time I was in a warm, safe home, this happened to me. Hmm. So actually maybe I'm safer here on the streets where I've got connections with people who look after me and don't let anybody hurt me. And and that might not have been the case in that person's childhood And, you know, the trauma story or their experience, the experience for every individual will be be different. But, and so will the impact. Trauma isn't what happens to you, it's what happens inside of you as a result of what happens to you. And that's Dr. Gabor Mate, that's not my quote, but you know, he's really right on that. And that is proven to me more and more. The impact to every individual is different. Yeah. But, you know, we can find common threads throughout that group. And usually if you talk to every homeless person, there's not a person out there who hasn't been through significant experiences mm-hmm. of trauma and adversity, every single one of them. I think Thanks. the only one that ever stayed with me, um, I remember saying to one guy, what are you doing out here? And he said to me, what are you doing in there? he was like you know he said you're the crazy one and I'll never forget that either he said you're the crazy one he said you sit in a box and look at a box (laughs) why would I want to sit in a box and look at a box when I could look at all this every day and when I just sat on the floor and looked at the world through his eyes it was amazing it was like an episode of EastEnders you know (laughs) he didn't need to sit in a box looking at a box because he had a live version every day something new something different And Mm. so, you know, his trauma obviously meant that was his safe space. And who am I to argue with that? Yeah. That's not to say, you know, I don't want people to listen to this and think, oh, well, you know, people like being homeless because Mm. they don't. That's the other side of it, you know, know. No, this isn't a choice. But actually, we need to understand the choices that people are making and why they're making those choices. When we can get to the root of that, we can then understand, well, why don't you feel safe? Mm. in a hostel or in a house what's happened and when we can get to that feeling and help somebody to feel safe again then we can get them to see our normal Mm. or you know what we class as normal then we can get them to view things through that trauma lens and then we can help them to manage those triggers because you know if you've been in a children's home for example and you've experienced sexual abuse in that children's home a hostel is going to feel very similar to that environment you know it is going to be a very very unsafe place you're going to feel very unsafe in that setting so if we can work with those feelings then that's more likely to be a successful placement than oh well they chose to be on the streets it's
0: not it's not true I mean that I think that's such a valuable thing you've just said because it really gets at the complexity of it Mm -hmm. like you know people don't all the people I interact with are cold and they're ignored it is so tough like it is so so tough but for example in Durham there are a homeless couple um, and they've had the opportunity to go and live in a house or mm-hmm. a hostel but it would mean that they have to leave each other yeah. and and for them the importance of the connection they have with each other overrides their I don't want to say necessity because they need they do need safety in terms of and warmth but it yeah. overrides their desire to well, be apart. Well they each
1: other's safety.
0: Yeah, I mean, like, so, for example... It,
1: that might not even be a healthy relationship, you know? Yeah. I don't know what that relationship's like. I mean, that's,
0: I mean, I, I, lo- I look at that relationship and I, I'm in awe of it, genuinely. I think yeah. there's very few relationships where I just, like, look and just kind of... My heart melts. Like, they are amazing. Yeah. Um, it's, like, of my heart's my week. But, like... But, for example, you know, something happened on Sunday which meant they had to be apart. And mm. it was really hard because I, I bumped into this bloke and... He was staring at um, the street because he was waiting for his girlfriend to come along. Yeah. And it was just like, my heart broke because he was—he is so intent on seeing her again and he didn't know, he didn't have a phone, he didn't have any way of contacting her, police wouldn't say anything. But just sitting with him and just waiting and like, I'll try and engage in conversation, but like he was just so intent on seeing her again. Yeah. And it just kind of really, one, it humanised the situation and recognised actually these guys need a connection they have a connection they that is the most important thing to them and i think that says a lot about the human nature um and it says a lot about our need for connection and the impact trauma has upon that connection
1: yeah
0: um and it just you know it really makes you think things through again
1: yeah and we see it with homeless people with dogs as well i would say when you see a homeless person with a dog it's because humans have hurt them too much Mm. you know and that's one of my big analogies and uh, another real barrier to homeless people moving on and getting accommodation is your dog can't come well I'm staying out here then because my dog is really important to me and show me an individual who owns a dog who wouldn't say the same thing
0: yeah
1: you know every dog owner would be like that with their pet or their animal so why would we expect homeless people to be different and part with that relationship
0: and we wouldn't expect people like we wouldn't put people in that situation to leave a loved one or a dog or something like that in any other situation yeah. like we'd expect it to be a given like why yeah. are we making why are we asking people to make choices which we wouldn't expect to ask of ourselves
1: it's, and really it's, almost,
0: it's sec- we make people second rate in that sense
1: and the other thing i think we also do in services is these people come into us needing our help and you know they're highly traumatized and the first thing we do is start asking lots of intrusive questions and you know why would they be honest with us why would they start telling us about their experiences when we don't have a relationship with them when they don't feel safe accessing services and actually the only safe thing they've got is this relationship you know that it sounds beautiful and a, a lovely relationship it sounds like that man was just disassociated because his brain was literally in a in a trauma response until he got his connection back so he wasn't able to he wasn't able to engage because his connection's gone it's almost like a a loss or a bereavement again Mm. you know until he gets that connection back what we see all the time in criminal justice system though is toxic relationships where you know people will be in this relationship together and it's not healthy and it's hurting them both but it's replaying those childhood patterns that they're used to of abusive relationships Mm. And so even though it's a really unhealthy relationship, they're codependent and they can't let go of that either. So relationships become really complex with trauma. But the only thing I'm certain of is that you know we're we're pack animals. We we live in group, we live in families. And when that's not present or when that's absent, it's really, really damaging to the human psyche. And we saw we saw the impact of that on a huge scale through COVID. How many people ended their lives or you know struggled to be disconnected? because of covid
0: you mentioned a little bit in a previous call about this idea of a mother wound yeah. and kind of like pack animals i suppose it comes a little bit into that um but you know a mother and a father but i think like research points particularly to mothers um why does that have such an impact and i mean what impact does it have can you talk, tell us a bit about that
1: yeah so we're working with a lot i think there's a there's a there's a assumption that all little boys learn to be violent from their fathers and that's true you know in some respects if you've grown up watching your father being violent and you grew up to be violent there could be an aspect of learned behavior but in addition to that there's a lot of boys that we're working with who struggle with the mother wound the young man that i mentioned from west africa Mm -hmm. you know he will attribute a lot of his um difficulties with his emotions down to his mother's absence so he okay. has been estranged from his mother from being a really small child and a lot of his choices and negative choices has been as a result of that mother wound and you know at one point he was in a gang and if you talk to her about his experiences of being in a gang he yeah, would say I would be on the front line in that gang I wanted to die so I could be where my mother was you know so that mother really? wound yeah, so that mother wound was driving his experiences, even of being in a gang. You know, um, every time he does something good, there's no one to make proud. And even though his father was present, I think there's just something the way. If you ask him about that, though, his description would be, you know, that mum guides her child he says you know mums make a a a relationship with their babies from when they're in the womb you know they're thinking about what they eat for nine months they're thinking so the bond with a mother and a child is very different this is what this is what he says Mm -hmm. he says and then for that bond to be taken away or removed or to be you know it leaves you with a sense of abandonment it leaves you with a huge sense of loss and he describes it as a hole inside you that nothing fills um and I can I can relate to that, you know, I, I was raised by my grandmother and, mm. you know, that feeling of, of why aren't I with my mum, you know, and yeah. it could be for, uh, you know, your mum's not well or your mum's got a health issue or, you know, some people, their mums have addictions, you know, the mums have got been through lots of trauma themselves and they're not able to look after the children. this isn't about blaming mums at all. Yeah. Mums are doing the best that they can.
0: And life's complex and yeah, it's hard. Life is hard.
1: You know, I'm a mum and I'm certainly not a perfect mom, but I, I do the best I can. And I'm sure that's the experience that every parent has because you don't know how to do it. You're learning as you go with your kids because every child's different. Their needs are different. And you're trying to adjust your parenting to meet that child's needs. So it's complex. You know, this isn't an, and I think this is a, another big point when we're talking about these topics, it's important for us not to blame you know even if we're thinking about people who commit the most horrendous crimes in society trauma's at the root of it and so you know if we think about this child it's not his mom's fault that she she's not here you know it's not it's not his fault either but the wound that that left is still with him, and that's what we're working with you know similarly in my situation it's not my mom's fault she wasn't able to look after me but you know that still left me with a wound and and that's been a wound that I've had to work through and that's maybe why I I got led into this trauma work as well understanding some of that
0: yeah thanks for sharing that
1: um
0: I suppose maybe we've we've talked a lot about it but we haven't really kind of gone through a little bit so can you tell us a little bit about the safety connection purpose like break it down a little bit I think we talked a little bit about the connection but let's start the safety yeah what do you mean by that
1: so you know safety isn't the absence of threat another one of gabor mate's quotes we live in a threatening world so sure. i mentioned covid and the pandemic yeah. just to kind of give it context that was a really unsafe time for a couple of years wasn't yeah. it so um we live in an unsafe world the day covid ended what happened oh there's a war in europe so again more unsafety. Mm-hmm. but you know we can't remove every threat or every risk from society risk is everywhere sure yeah But it's not that that makes us feel unsafe. We're born in an adverse world. We're born in a risky world. It's going through those things on your own that feels unsafe because it's not, safety isn't the absence of threat, it's the presence of connection. Mm -hmm. And that's why, you know, if we go back to those wounds of your parents not being present, if, if it's mother wound, father wound, you know, if we're looking at care leavers, which is the main cohort that we work with, a lot of them, their feelings of unsafety comes from being alone in the world because there isn't a mother or there isn't a father or there isn't you know, somebody looking out for mm-hmm. them or somebody who's been protecting them. And that can feel it can feel traumatising for them or like, I'm, what's wrong with me? And this is the thing with trauma. I think if it happens when we're really young, when our brain's growing and when we're learning... You know <clears throat> we have that lower part of the brain that says we need to be safe middle part of the brain that says we need to be connected and the front part of our brain is where we learn mm. so, give us our purpose yeah so you imagine two children starting school sure. one of them's had trauma one of them hasn't
0: mm-hmm. they're
1: about three or four years old they can't articulate oh yeah. I've had this traumatic experience or you know my mum and dad have split up or there's been a horrendous divorce there that i've observed you know they can't articulate any of that because they are or, or even you know my dad or my mum have fights every night. You know, they we can't they can't articulate to that, that to us. But what we're gonna see when that child gets into school is one of those children that the child who hasn't been exposed, it's gonna follow instructions from the teacher, it's gonna be able to do the work that's set for it, and it's gonna have healthy esteem because of that. Because, oh you know, well done, you're doing your work, and you're you good boy, or you you know, you're good child, you're doing doing well. The other child, though, is going to be like disassociated, you know, Mm -hmm. not able to think straight. Thoughts are going to be cloudy because the brain development is going to be delayed because of those early experiences, because rather than feeling safe and connected and attuned and, you know, um, like you've got choices and having all these healthy ideas of love, that's not been that child's experience. And so it's neurological development is going to have been delayed. So when it gets to school and it doesn't, make friends well why doesn't people want to play with me what's wrong with me Mm.
0: and then that just as a cycle yeah and then you don't engage with people you don't connect with people and
1: or even worse than that ollie the teacher sets you the work you don't do the work you don't know how to do the work so you start acting out and being naughty and then it's get out of class and and it's out of school and the punishment starts
0: and then that become normalized and then and then the
1: child shuts down i can't tell you what's been happening or why i feel like this and maybe i don't even know why i feel like this because i can't remember it Hmm.
0: because and then (laughs) and then people become institutionalized and they uh-huh. don't know how to act in the real world. I mean, like I, we talked about the Shawshank Redemption. Yeah, if You've not heard it, but a lot of people listening to this podcast would have like it's a really famous film yeah. and there's, you know, without spoilers. Sorry, guys, like, <laughs> you know, at the end of the film, there's this old bloke who I think he served for like 50 years. So he's he's purely institutionalized yeah. He gets out and he just does not know how to function mm-hmm. um
1: it was really interesting people who go in prison, what you often witness is when they come out're the same age they were when they went in really? it's almost like the development stopped. well so I think
0: in this like he pr- he probably had that, but he was eighty or what and yeah. so i mean it's it's a reset part of the film, but he he takes his own life yeah. and you know I don't know if that's a reality I don't know if that's reflective of real life yeah. um but I think it puts into context, like if we're talking about this guy, this bloke is 80 years old. And if we're saying this is kind of realistic, like, and if we're putting in the context of everything we're talking about, this eight year old and the things he's feeling and decision that he's made is in the context of when he was young, like when he went to the class, couldn't function in class, then got punished, then normalised that punishment, then kind of progressed, left school. No one really can. It's
1: not just a normalization. The, the body takes over. So, remember, I said the thinking brain's offline. So, we mm. become reactive. So, you know, and our body's reactive responses if we're unsafe, the body will do one of three things it will fight, because I've got to fight my way out of this situation yeah. to stay alive. And we see that a lot in criminal justice people feel unsafe, they react, and then they end up on a, a long sentence for hurting somebody. Um, flight which is I'm going to run away because I just mm-hmm. can't cope with this or it can be I'm going to bury my head in the sand and not look at it and we know people that do that or I'm going to be a workaholic or I'm going to be a, a you know anyaholic that makes me not think about what I've been through or um, we freeze which means we do nothing and we just, <gasps> we're just frozen with those down.
0: which of those do you think applies most to the street
1: I think there's a lot of flight response on the street And just to come back to your point about the Shawshank Redemption, if we think of the ultimate flight response, it's a suicide attempt.
0: Hmm.
1: It's I can't cope with it. it's It's a flight response. And I think we see a lot of flight on the streets because I feel unsafe. My needs haven't been met. I don't know how to articulate that my needs haven't been met. I've been punished a lot. So I don't deserve anything good. I mean, I've had it in probation before now. Where I've been stood in the reception area, and there's been a guy stood in the corner. And I've said to him, Oh, are you waiting for somebody? Take a seat. And we'd just moved at this point into a new shiny, bright probation office, you yeah. know, look at the yellow sofas and take a seat. Oh, no, I can't sit on those sofas. You know, yeah. and a lot of people will feel.
0: Why is that? Is that because he doesn't feel worthy?
1: Don't feel worthy. I remember sitting on a wing with a group of men and saying, look, we're gonna turn this wing into a resettlement wing. part of got people released from custody. One of them said to me, we, we're in prison, love. We don't deserve anything good. Yeah. And I said, you know, the punishment is the loss of your liberty. The uh-huh. punishment is you being in this environment with no access to friends, family, and all the other wonderful things that we take for granted freedoms. You know, yeah. that's your punishment. But actually, while you're in here, it's rehabilitation so actually you know you are worthy of of time and attention because that's where rehabilitation lies and if we're not giving people time and attention and understanding what their experiences have been and helping them to develop better coping strategies how are we going to move them on
0: yeah i mean like what you're talking about there is a lot of shame i mean shame seems to be undermining massively the idea of safety and those feelings of safety because if you're shameful you don't feel safe and therefore you don't make connections because you feel like you're going to be rejected Was
1: it- well, we, we live in a system that shames though ollie you know mm. if you think about um all right let's think about the education system yeah if a child misbehaves we shame them and then we're going to ring your parents and ask them to shame you as well you know and then parents you know if a child does something wrong we shame them
0: have you seen I- shame have a big impact upon the work you do
1: hugely and in then way because if if you're going to shame somebody then they're waiting to be shamed all the time it's shame. so that what is shame so
0: they're they're waiting to be shamed it's an expectation it's like
1: if your experiences as a child have been constantly rooted in being shamed then it becomes chronic shame and you're waiting to be shamed again so i don't want to ask for help in case shame mm-hmm. me for asking for help or if you in case you tell me there's no help available and that's going to make really me feel interesting. ashamed yeah. of asking you know I shouldn't have asked because you're going to say no and so there's this um feeling that comes with shame and it's just
0: like it's simple things like not being able to go into a shop because you think you're going to get kicked out yeah like going you've got let's say a couple quid they told you stink you know go to a meal deal go buy a meal deal, and like nah sorry you're going to steal something
1: yeah it like, can't serve you yeah. Yeah. being followed by security I mean all those things are really shameful
0: like what other context does that happen it, no other context on a day-to-day thing that's just not normal
1: it's not but then even if you think when you go to services well you know um I can't live in that hostel that you've placed me in big why not well you know we've offered you a bed and if you haven't if you, if you haven't accepted the bed you made yourself intentionally homeless uh-huh. But I've explained that I was raped as a child and that environment makes me feel really unsafe. Well, then you're intentionally homeless. Like there's such a lack of compassion in our systems that like, we're constantly shaming people for not being able to cope. And then we wonder why suicide rates are rising.
0: I mean, I, it's, it's simple things. Like we're talking about big ideas here, but even yeah. just on a basic day-to-day level, I mean, how we've talked. I talked a bit about this on the last podcast, but walking past someone and just completely ignoring them and looking through them and feeling awkward. I mean, and, yeah. I understand it. I kind of, I've, I've been there myself because of awkwardness and not knowing how to react. Yeah. But that still does lead to those people feeling shamed. Like the people I, like my friends that I speak to on the street, they feel shameful and they feel like they're worthless, like just by and not acknowledging them.
1: Where have we lost that? Because I think it's a real bugbear of mine, but I think feel like we've got to a stage in humanity where we think more of animals than we do over humans. When a dog is traumatized by a human being, we put it into a dog's home and we nurture it and we have all this therapeutic care, and then we look for a new family and we say, "My God, we're going to make sure this dog never gets hurt again mm. because that was awful what it went through." And new family, we're going to come and check your house and we're going to make sure you never hurt this dog again. But yet when a human behaves in that way, we throw it in a cage, as I said, for 23 and a half hours a day, and we expect something to change. Why on earth would it change? Hmm. And then we test them?
0: her, And it'll, it'll just be oh, we shame them. Yeah. Oh,
1: you know, flock them up and throw the key away. How have we got into this? How have we got into a world that we use media to shame the most vulnerable in our society? Don't get it. Really don't get it. And if it doesn't work for a dog, why would it work for a human?
0: I think it'd be easy to hear this podcast and come away wrongly with the misconception that all homeless people and um, because they're traumatized are criminals because criminals are traumatized criminals leave prison they don't have anywhere to go so they become homeless does trauma always lead to prison or violence
1: i've got a high a score I've never been to prison i'm not violent yeah. you know and i think it's important as well not to be deterministic remember I said earlier it's not the trauma it's the impact and the impact to every individual will be different mm. and sometimes I get asked well Julia you know why didn't you end up violent or on a violent trajectory yeah, sure. in, in a prison cell and again it was connection I was raised by my now 94 year old nan, who mm. I'm still very lucky to have yeah. it was a birthday last weekend awesome. and, she, and she was wonderful you know um Yes, there was trauma in our household growing up. I'm not going to tell you that, you know, there wasn't. She's Mm. 94 and Irish. She was raised during the Second World War. Uh Who would think that the remnants of the Second World War would be prevalent in me? But they are. We're all just products of what we've been through. Mm. But the only thing that keeps us from, you know, going the whole way is connection.
0: Mm. And
1: that's why Under One Sky's model is so special, because... You work on connection. You work on making people feel safe through connection. And that's why most of your homeless people will take that support, will accept the help that you're offering, will move into accommodation because you're doing that pre-work first around safety and connection. And through that, we can find people a belonging and a space in the world.
0: Does it work? Does this all work? What's the end point? We talk about purpose. Um, We have safety connection and we haven't really talked much about purpose. But purpose yeah. is the way in which we reinstill within someone worth, value, a recognition that they're worthy to do something, yeah. to do something with their lives.
1: And purpose is also getting them to think. Purpose is the thinking brain.
0: And have you seen that so, work? Have you seen...
1: Our trainers, you know, we're, we've yeah. got trainers who've gone from reacting to life to planning out their lives and, yeah. and living wonderful lives. Trauma means you react to everything. You know, if we okay. can work with people on becoming less reactive... And we can help them to develop this part of the brain that didn't develop when they were children because they were too busy reacting and keeping themselves safe. If we can work with this front part of the brain and teach them how to problem solve, how to think through the consequences of things, how to ask for help, how to say that I'm not coping at the moment, how to say, actually, this feels really unsafe to me, rather than just reacting and kicking off. And then we go, oh, look, he has another violent one. Oh, look, he's another one. who doesn't want our help. Oh no, they like being on the streets. They're not hard to reach. They're easy to ignore. It does work. It's not. I'm not going to sit there and tell you that you know if somebody's had those horrendous experiences as children, there's a magic wonder we can take their experiences mm. away. We can't. No. But the narrative we have at Dignify is: how do those experiences from the past affect you today? And if we can work on how those experiences are affecting you, we can begin to move you forward.
0: What What surprised you about what you're doing? What surprised about the work you do?
1: the prevalence of trauma is everywhere Mm. that's why I quit my job in the end because I like you talk about that trauma lens (laughs) Mm. once I was looking at life through that trauma lens it was everywhere in my own family in my colleagues in the people i worked with everywhere Mm. and that's been my biggest epiphany. Everybody needs to know what trauma is. Every parent, every police officer, every social worker, every person who's working with homeless people, you know, every t- school teacher as well. Yeah. Right? Every service needs to know what this is. And we all need to be acting and responding differently when we see people in distress.
0: And that's that's exactly why... I mean, this is our second episode. This is why we're starting the conversation by talking about trauma like this whole podcast series is one long conversation about the complexities the, the dynamism of homelessness and you know if we're going to change the narrative we've got to have this different lens and recognize yeah. that each person is unique with a different set of stories it is a story and a lot of that time that that story's hard and it's yeah. long and it's it's just been painful a lot of time and that's made a mark you can't ignore that yeah. um, so yeah. I'm really thankful for all you've shared today and like your honesty and the way you've articulated things in such a clear way um it's been really i've really enjoyed this conversation
1: yeah um, me too and um, i hope it helps i hope it helps to just raise awareness as i said we're working our way around the country banging that trauma drum no um, you should keep
0: going to genuinely yeah. just keep going thank you it's so important and it, it's the start of it's start of us trying to as people interact with people in a proper way and connect properly um yeah. so it's invaluable work so thanks so much for doing that you're welcome, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, nice, so welcome. See you next